Let's open up the Holy Scriptures now to Psalm 103. We will have as our text tonight, verse 4 of the psalm. Let's read the whole psalm together. This is the word of the Lord. Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgiveth all thine iniquities, who healeth all thy diseases, who redeemeth thy life from destruction, who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfieth thy mouth with good things, so that thy youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord executeth righteousness and judgment for all that are oppressed. He made known his ways unto Moses, his acts unto the children of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and plenteous in mercy. He will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. For he knoweth our frame, he remembereth that we are dust. As for man, his days are as grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourisheth. For the wind passeth over it, and it is gone, and the place thereof shall know it no more. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him and his righteousness unto children's children, to such as keep his covenant and to those that remember his commandments to do them. The Lord hath prepared his throne in the heavens and his kingdom ruleth over all. Bless the Lord, ye his angels that excel in strength, that do his commandments hearkening unto the voice of his word. Bless ye the Lord, all ye his hosts, ye ministers of his that do his pleasure. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. As so far we read Holy Scripture, let's reread verse 4, the text. Who redeemeth thy life from destruction, who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, the psalmist David here, psalmist of 
Psalm 103, opens up this psalm by speaking to his soul about all the benefits that the Lord has bestowed upon him. That's really what's going on here. David is having a conversation with his soul. He's speaking to his soul, and this will go on in the following verses too. What he's doing in verses 1 and 2 is he's speaking to his soul about these benefits. He says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Bless, praise, fall down and worship before the Lord, soul. He's given you so much. And when David opens up the psalm in these first couple of verses, he begins generally and looks at these benefits that the Lord has given him, as it were, from the 35,000-foot view. But then, starting with verse 3, he comes down and he looks at the benefits that the Lord has given him specifically. So verse 3, forgiveth all thine iniquities, there's one benefit, healeth all thy diseases, there's another benefit. And now here is still another, and it's our text, who redeemeth thy life from destruction. And so it's that specific benefit that the Lord bestows upon us that we consider tonight in our applicatory service. One other comment by way of introduction about Psalm 103 is this. There is a golden thread that weaves its way all through the psalm so that you cannot look and read and understand Psalm 103 without seeing this golden thread shining from it. And that theme is the mercy of God. The psalm proclaims it over and over and over and our text is no different. Who redeemeth thy life from destruction, who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies. Oh, how the Lord, in his so great mercy, has given to us so much. Let's consider one of those benefits under the theme, the soul redeemed, crowned, and blessing. And then we'll just take each of those for our our points. In the first place, redeemed. Second, crowned. And third, blessing. David is here having a conversation with or speaking to his soul. And he says that his soul, or he calls it life in our text, his soul, his life has been redeemed from destruction. When you're redeemed, and we'll get to redemption a little bit later and what that is, but when you are redeemed, you're always redeemed from something, and that something from which he and you and I have been redeemed is called destruction here. That word destruction literally means pit. 
so that you'd do justice to the verse if you would read it this way. Who redeemeth thy life from the pit. I would like you, for sake of illustration, to imagine in your mind a pit or hole or crevice in the ground. It's all dark and black, children. It's very narrow and of oneself without a rescuer, that crevice going into the ground is inescapable. It's a place of ruin and destruction and misery. So that's the image that you can have in your mind, an illustration to help us understand the text. But now, what's the reality here? What is this pit or this destruction to which the text refers? Three things here. First of all, destruction or pit is a figure of spiritual death. It's figurative for spiritual death, if I may put it this way. Spiritual death is like a pit. Where do I get this from? Well, if you look at verse 3, which comes right before our text, it says, Who forgiveth all thine iniquities, who healeth all thy diseases. And diseases there are not some physical infirmity of the body, but these are spiritual diseases, and at least in part, those spiritual diseases are that corrupt, sinful nature that we have. That old man. And now it's that thought of the corrupt, sinful nature that's carried over into our text when it refers to destruction or pit. Spiritual death is the result of sin. You remember well those words, don't you? Genesis 2 verse 17, God said to Adam, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Adam, there's that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You eat of that, and when you do, you're going to die. And we understand death there in a few different senses, but one of them is in that very moment, you are going to die spiritually. Adam's guilt was imputed or reckoned over to us. And because we are guilty, we are also then conceived and born in sin. And it's that idea of being conceived and born in sin, dead in trespasses and sins, that's the spiritual death we're talking about. It makes sense, doesn't it, that this spiritual death is compared to a pit? As with a hole in the ground, remember that image? As with a hole in the ground, you can't see anything. It's just pitch black all around you. So also, our canons describe what happened to man when he fell into sin. 
Notice, blindness of mind and horrible darkness. And as with a crevice in the ground, it has very steep sides and it's inescapable, so also man in his own power cannot escape from his depravity. And as with a hole in the ground, someone without a rescuer will surely go into destruction and ruin. So also Belgic Confession, Article 16, speaks of the human race, apart from the grace of God, as being in ruin. And it means their complete spiritual destruction, a hopeless situation out of which there is no escape. Destruction or pit is figurative of spiritual death. Secondly, this destruction or pit is also figurative of eternal death in hell. If I may put it this way, hell is like a pit. Proverbs 7, verse 27. You recognize Proverbs 7 as a strong warning against the wicked, adulterous woman. Now notice verse 27. Her house is the way to hell, going down to the chambers of death. So you must picture in your mind that hell is like a chamber of death, as it were, in the basement, and a person descends down a staircase, if you will. He goes down into this chamber of death, which we call hell. You see that idea of going down or descending, as it were, into a chamber or a pit. That's the way hell is described. Beloved, hell is terrible. Shudder even to describe it, and you to hear about it. It's a place of eternal suffering under the wrath of God. Outpoured wrath. Hell never ends. It just keeps on going and going and going. That suffering does. It makes sense, doesn't it, that hell is compared to a pit. You think of a hole in the ground, go back to the illustration, you think of a hole in the ground, it's all dark. So also Jesus in the New Testament describes hell as an outer darkness. And he means by that, there is no fellowship there. It's a place of isolation and loneliness and misery. And just like that crevice in the ground is something that one cannot escape from, so hell is inescapable. One who goes there is there forever. And just like that pit is a place of destruction and ruin and misery, so the Bible calls hell destruction. And not in the sense that someone who goes to hell is annihilated and ceases to exist. No, he continues to be there in hell, but destruction in the sense of misery 
an everlasting punishment that is experienced. Pit or destruction, figurative for spiritual death. Also figurative for eternal death in hell. And third, this destruction or pit is very literally now the grave. The grave is a pit. The word that you have for destruction in our text is the same word that's used in other places of the Old Testament to describe the grave. You and I know what that is. It's the place to which the dead body goes. It's a place of death and corruption. It's now even physically deep, narrow, dark, inescapable of self. And I think if you've been the graveside of a loved one, some of us have been there more recently, there's a certain finality. There's the casket suspended over that cold, dark hole. Maybe you stay long enough for it to be lowered into the ground. Everyone leaves and goes to their cars. There's a certain finality to it. Death and the body returning to the dust. We ought to understand and always remember is that death and the grave is not a natural process that's built into the creation. Death and the grave is a consequence of sin. It's the result of sin. You remember God's word to Adam in Genesis 3 verse 19. This is after they fell into sin, of course. And then he says, In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread till thou return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. You could summarize, children, this pit or destruction with one word. Death. In every sense, death. Praise the Lord. Bless the Lord, O my soul, that I have been, and David too, and you, redeemed from that destruction. We've been redeemed from that pit. That's what he says. Delights in that. Who redeemeth thy life from destruction. When you speak of redemption, redemption always, of course, involves a redeemer. Someone who does it. Someone who accomplishes or carries it out. The text begins with who. Who redeemeth thy life from destruction? And that who is the Lord, all capital letters. Children in chapel, you remember what name that is. It's Jehovah. Go back to the first two verses of the psalm. Bless Jehovah, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless Jehovah, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. And now that's the very same Jehovah when you come to verse 4 who has accomplished this marvelous work of redemption. 
That's a reminder that when it comes to being redeemed, as well as to all the other aspects of salvation, it's all of the Lord. Jehovah does it from A to Z. Think about it. We could not redeem ourselves. We did not even want redemption. And when you think about it in terms of that illustration, that we're deep down in that dark crevice, how impossible that I should save myself and redeem myself. Jehovah must do it. And He is the one that does. He redeems David. He redeems you and me and all His elect people in Jesus Christ. That's the Redeemer. Only begotten Son who took to Himself flesh, suffered and died. That's the Redeemer. And so we come to the New Testament. Luke chapter 2. Which makes reference to Christ as the Redeemer. Verses 36 to 38. You remember that story of aged Anna? And there was one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Aser. She was of great age and had lived with an husband seven years from her virginity. And she was a widow of about fourscore and four years, which departed not from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And she coming in that instant gave thanks likewise unto the Lord and spake of him to all them that looked for redemption in Jerusalem and understood this little babe, Christ Jesus the Lord, he is the Redeemer. So redemption involves one who does it, Redeemer. Redemption also involves that that one who redeems, God and Jesus Christ, pays a price. That's redemption, the payment of a price. And that price, congregation, is not money. It's not all the silver and gold that could be found in the world. You perhaps, in a very limited way, but perhaps can get somewhere economically and in an earthly sense with money and gold and silver. But those things go nowhere when it comes to redemption. You see, they're of the earth. They're corruptible things. There must be something Different. This is a spiritual reality, redemption. There must be a different price and something that's infinitely higher. And do you know what it is? The precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the price of our redemption. First Peter chapter 1. Verses 18 and 19, a classic passage on redemption. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. 
That's the price. When you think about it, what a great price that was. His own blood. And if you've really thought about that, what does that really mean that he shed his blood? This, he gave his very life. And that's what this is all about. He gave his life. Infinitely higher cost you cannot find in all of the world. For Christ, paying that price meant that he descended down into the pit of spiritual death and hellish agonies. He went down into that pit of spiritual death. Have you ever thought of Jesus' whole life as really just one long walk through death? It was. So that from the cradle all the way to the cross, it's all black as it were. The Lord is punishing him for our sins, the guilt of our sin which was imputed to him. And he knew and he experienced the full reality and horror of death under the fierce anger of the Lord. You can think of his life like one continuous descent down a staircase. So there in Bethlehem, he's coming down and through his life, step by step, and then he begins his earthly ministry and he's getting lower. Then finally he comes to the cross and he can't get any lower down that staircase. He's in the very bottom of that black and narrow pit. And he suffered it all the way through. Suffered in the pit of hell. You may say that. Not in the sense that he actually went to the place of hell. He did not go to the place of hell. But you remember how our Heidelberg Catechism describes it. He experienced hellish agonies. Anguish, pains, terrors. And do you remember how our Heidelberg Catechism says it too? He was, now think of the direction, plunged into those hellish anguish, pains, terrors, and agonies as going down into that hole. He suffered in those flames of the wrath of God against our sin until they were all extinguished. Literally, he went into the pit, too, into the grave. You know, sometimes we don't always treat that like we should or hear as much as we should about it. But the fact that Christ's dead body was placed into the sepulcher, that, too, is part of the plan of God's salvation, and it's important. He must, as our Savior, he must go into the place of death and corruption. But you remember, his body, even in that grave, did not see any corruption, did not show any rotting or decomposition. And what that shows is that he's already conquered death at the cross. And he's already paid the price of redemption in his blood at the cross. His body saw no corruption. 
Jesus Christ entered into the pit of death in every sense. And he came out of that hole victorious. Redemption needs a redeemer. It involves the payment of a price. But this too, redemption involves freedom. Freedom. God in Christ paid that price in the blood of Jesus Christ to do what? To secure our freedom from that pit of destruction. What Christ did secures freedom from that spiritual death. I'm no longer in bondage to sin. It no longer has its stranglehold over me and its clutches around me. And indeed, now you and I and David too have freedom, full, true, everlasting life with God and service to Him. What the Lord Jesus did by His blood secures freedom from hell too. He's delivered you from ever having to descend into those eternal flames. Isn't that good news, beloved? I don't go to hell. Christ has paid the price and He's secured freedom from those flames. And instead, I have awaiting me in my future abiding glory and to dwell in heaven forever and to see my God in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ and to enjoy endless delights and fellowship with Him. And what Christ did even secures freedom from the grave itself. Fact is, beloved, unless the Lord Jesus comes first, you're going to die, and so am I. We're going to be placed in that grave. Our body will see corruption and turn to dust. Again, consequence of the fall into sin. But when Christ comes again, on that last and glorious day, He's going to transform that body in the grave raise it up and transform it, change it from a corruptible body into an incorruptible body. Marvelous, glorious body fit for the new heaven and new earth. And at that last day, He will take care of all the consequences of sin. Now do you understand something of when Jesus said to His disciples, lift up your heads, your redemption draweth nigh. And he's pointing to the last day when he returns. He raises up the body and takes care and removes all the consequences of sin. How the psalmist delights in this work of redemption and the freedom that is secured. Deemeth thy life. He's speaking, remember, to his soul and when he says he's redeemed your life or he's redeemed your soul, he means every single part of you, your body, your soul, your all. 
And that's the good news for you today too. He redeems everything of you so that there's not one part that's untouched by this work of Christ. And he says, not only has that soul been redeemed, it's even crowned. Who redeemeth thy life from destruction, who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies. Loving kindness and tender mercies both refer to what we call the mercy of God. That's the crown here. When Jehovah has mercy upon someone, that someone is always in misery or woe. And if I would ask you at this point in the sermon, what's that misery and woe? You could probably all answer it immediately. It's that pit, that destruction. The Lord has mercy upon those who are miserable. And the mercy of God is His compassion, His pity upon us who are in our woe deep down in that pit. That pity, that compassion really comes out in that word tender mercies. The Lord is deeply moved within himself toward us. Isn't that amazing? Have you ever had it where you visited someone in the hospital and there they were lying on the hospital bed and they were just writhing in pain? And all you could do is look at that person and you felt something down here in your bowels. You just ached for that person. The Lord is deeply moved, even aches toward us. His compassion. But His mercy is not just pity or compassion upon those who are in their woe. His mercy is a power too. It's His will to bless His people. He not only desires to bless, but He will actually do it. His mercy is a power to take us out of our woe and our misery and to bless us to a very, very high degree. His mercy is His will to bless. Now let's take those two pieces of the verse and let's bring them together. When He redeems us from destruction, that's how He shows His loving kindness and tender mercy toward us. When He redeemed us with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, that is His demonstration or the manifestation of His so great mercy that He has toward us. You want to see just how merciful the Lord is? He sent His only begotten Son into the flesh to descend into this pit and thus to pay the necessary price. You want to see how great the loving kindness and tender mercies of Jehovah are? You want to see how deeply moved He is toward us? He's paid the price 
in Christ to secure our freedom from the pit and to deliver us from the grasp of the grave on the last day and has already given to us life unending and will one day bring us to the light and life and fellowship of heaven forever. That is mercy. And when you don't think it could possibly get better, it does. Because the Word of God says not only something about loving kindness and tender mercies, but that we're crowned with them. First of all, a crown is meant to show how highly honored someone is. How highly has Jehovah exalted us And the amazing thing is not only that in the power of His mercy has He taken us up out of that deep, dark, narrow pit of destruction out of which we could never escape of ourselves. Not only has He taken us up and as it were to ground level, but He's exalted us to dizzying heights in His mercy. He has so highly honored us, exalted us. Secondly, a crown is meant to be displayed. Isn't that even true, children, you know, of kings in history? They would have that crown on their head, that beautiful crown, and that was meant to be displayed, something to be seen and noticed not only by the king, but by other people as well. The crown of mercy Jehovah has placed upon your head is meant to be seen, known not only by us, but by others. What is your identity? This. I'm a wretch in my sinfulness and sin, but the Lord has had compassion upon me, a wretch. It's good for me and for you too to remember this crown of loving kindness and tender mercies on our head. When we know it and when we see it, won't that, beloved, change even how we live our lives and how we interact with other people? When I'm conscious of the fact God has had mercy upon me and I did not deserve that whatsoever. He's had mercy on me in my woe and misery That's going to change even how I talk to people in church and interact with people. And isn't this something that we're going to witness to others? Can you possibly keep it in? Go into the workplace, meet that person in the grocery store, that neighbor that comes across your path, and also our family and friends and congregation. How can I possibly keep this in? There's a crown. It's seen. The Lord is at mercy. On me. It's that crown of loving kindness and tender mercies that we're going to be admiring on each other's heads for all eternity in heaven. A crown is meant to show how highly honored someone is, it's meant to be displayed. And third, a crown is something that completely encompasses or surrounds 
the head. Which is just to say, his mercy is complete. It's not lacking in any respect, and it will never fail. Never. It's a mercy, beloved, that is inexhaustible in its supply. So that no matter what my circumstances are today, month of November 2023, and no matter what kind of day I wake up to Monday morning, tomorrow, this I know. His mercies are new every single morning. Always fresh. What a crown. It's a soul that's been redeemed. It's a soul that's been crowned. And it's a soul that blesses too. Have to see our text in light of verses 1 and 2. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Remember what David is doing here? He's speaking to his soul, and he's saying, bless or worship, praise the Lord's soul. And there he was very general when it comes to the benefits of God that he bestows in his mercy. But now our text, in his so great mercy, he's even redeemed me from destruction. What reason there is for you, soul. What weighty reason to fall down before the Lord tonight in church and worship before him. He has done such great things for you. That's something that you can say. Bless the Lord, O my soul. You can say that through tears. You can say that at the side of the grave. You can exclaim it every day. And you will say it into all eternity in the heavenly glory to which mercy has exalted you. Amen. Our Father in heaven, our hearts overflow with thanksgiving and praise to Thee, Jehovah, who has done so great things for us. Father, we pray that Thou press this word upon our hearts, that Thou wilt apply it by Thy Spirit richly to our lives. Bless this worship service. Father, forgive all of our sins and lead us by thy word and spirit. Walk a life of gratitude before thee. For Jesus' sake we pray, and in his name alone, amen.